at times is becoming farcical and you have to really feel for these players and management this isn't normal in any shape or form for your first chance to hear brian o'driscoll on otb download the otb sports app and turn on your notifications i don't know if you can see me sweating but i'm after going from christmas shopping to rush back to get in here literally in the supermarket there was a queue going from the door going into the supermarket right up to the actual uh checkout i this week is madness. I don't know why people are just going mad because of COVID. But I tell you what, I'm delighted to be here talking about the NFL because I do not want to be up in those shops again. Yeah, it is not seasonably... These are not seasonal conditions, I should say. It's uh, kind of sweltering heat out there. I think it might be that sense of panic you're alluding to there, Keen. But people who've been watching off the ball or listening to off the ball across this week will know a lot of uh, end-of-year review type stuff. And we should follow that lead, I think, and just reflect on the year that was briefly here at the top and I asked you before we came on air to pick your highlight and low light of the year so what have you got for us? Uh, yeah my highlight is very simple and very straightforward I have absolutely loved watching Jonathan Taylor play and I don't care one way or another if he's an MVP or not the quality of his play has been outstanding obviously because of the numbers he's putting up the way he runs has been very very effective he's got great vision he's got great uh, intensity, he's got great uh, acceleration in tight spaces, and once he hits the open field, he, he's a breakaway player. But I think for me, there's great value in having a running back like this, a guy who is pushing himself towards the MVP conversation at the very least, because and he probably will never win it. Quarterbacks are always going to win it. But when you reach that level of just being pushing yourself in that le- in, towards that conversation, you're you're performing at an unbelievable level and an unbelievable level of consistency. But surpass that. Just the sure enjoyment of watching him play. He runs closer to Adrian Peterson than anyone I've ever seen that I've seen since Prime Adrian Peterson. He gets those high knees up. He gets that linear acceleration through defenders, but he can also make defenders miss when he gets the opportunity to do so. He's carried the Colts' offense, and at a time when a lot of the offenses are very similar, and a lot of the offenses are very bland because they've all become the same short passing games. The Colts are doing something very, very different. And even though Carson Wentz is a limited quarterback and their overall talent level isn't that high. Taylor himself is just a joy to watch week in and week out. Uh, Ronan, what's your highlight of the year? Because I'm going to go ahead and guess it's not the Ravens' injuries this year. Well, like, nominally it's always Lamar Jackson whenever I get to see him play, but I can't necessarily go with that this year. Like, to be honest, because last year was so weird, uh, last season that is, I think the the Super Bowl and the the strides they made to make that feel somewhat normal, like, I enjoyed that for the event that it was. The game was a bit strange and I think you're going to get to it in your low light in terms of Patrick Mahomes running for his life for much of it but I think like they, they made great strides in terms of getting a crowd in there what they did from a char- charitable point of view around that game and like fans of narratives I'm no Tom Brady fan by any means but the fact that he was able to secure a Super Bowl in the Tampa Bay Stadium in his first season was quite like cinematic in some ways so I think the fact that they managed to pull off Super Bowl in this in the situation that we're in was was quite remarkable. Yeah, my lowlight of the calendar year, anyway, even though it's not this season, is most definitely that Super Bowl. Not necessarily the game itself or the uh, the result of the game, but rather just the fact that we didn't get to see a fully healthy Patrick Mahomes. He got injured. It was either the Browns or the Bills. I can't remember which which team it was. They played they played them in successive order. He injured his leg in that game, and he he, he was supposedly healthy and good to go but then we kind of watched him play on the day and it was very obvious that his ankle or foot or whatever it was was nowhere near healthy and he wasn't able to move and it would have been such an incredible matchup to watch him not only going against Tom Brady but going against that defense where uh, the defensive line was all going to win every single matchup and every single snap and to be honest with you 
that playoff journey, that uh, spectacular stuff Mahomes did in that in that playoff run before the Super Bowl, that's the last time I feel like we've seen the real Patrick Mahomes or we've seen the peak Patrick Mahomes. Since then, it feels like his inconsistency has carried over. And in that Super Bowl last year, if he had been as effective as you, as you wanted him to be, I think it would have been one of the classic games of, of all time. It would have been one of the best games of all time because you had all of the weapons on offense on both sides. You've had defensively, there was lots of playmakers there. You've had two quarterbacks who you know love a big occasion. And ultimately, it just became a, a damn squid. It didn't help that I had most of my money betting on the Chiefs. Hmm. Uh, so it's, a, it's not a great memory that way either. It all comes out in the end. I think that was what you were angling towards all along throughout that answer, Keen. But Pretty much. I think my low light, ironically, and it, this extra week in the NFL season has given us more stuff to talk about, but I just think the addition of that you know, surplus game and what they're planning to do with it in the long run in terms of jetting players here, there and everywhere, giving them more short weeks and... You know, this is an attritional game at the best of times, and, and 16 week seasons, you know, were always tough, but you're seeing like it's going to be very much survival of the fittest. And Patrick Mahomes is just, is just one example of that. Like, players are dropping like flies, and it was the same last week as well. So, the, 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 the reality that players' welfare hasn't been really taken into account, despite the fact that this was collectively bargained in some ways. To my knowledge, the, what the players' representatives were saying is not what they ultimately got, and I think. That was kind of a little bit unfortunate, just like, I know we're going to get to him later, but the likes of Teddy Bridgewater hitting the deck and these kinds of guys. So I don't know how you feel about this extra game or, or what it's done for the rhythm of the season. I think the NFL is in a dangerous place and has been for the last couple of seasons where they keep trying to expand the season and have more games. And you understand the rationale behind that. Whenever you have an NFL game, you make a huge amount of money. You sell the TV rights, you get fans in stadiums, you get crazy, crazy money. And that's how all these people became billionaires. And that's how all these franchises became a billion dollar valuations. But the real attraction of the NFL is the short season, is the high end quality play. And that's why people get excited. That's why they spend months and months and months waiting for it to come back. Whereas they can half pay attention to their baseball team, half pay attention to their NBA team and only tune in during the playoffs. What's happening now is we're getting more regular season games. And because of the nature of this sport, that means we're getting more injuries. And when we're getting more injuries, you're getting matchups between quarterbacks that people don't want to watch. And the more we do this, and the, or the more we do this, the more bad football people watch, the more uh, available football is, the desire to, ha to have football to watch goes away. And then when football is there, the actual quality of football that you're watching is less enjoyable. But most importantly, when you have, and this is something that happens every so often, when you have one of the best teams in the league, and it's week 12, week 13, week 14, and you're sad to talk about the playoffs, and you get really excited about the playoffs, and you think, yes, this is going to be a great matchup. We can go watch watch the, the top quarterback against the top quarterback, the Cam Newton against Carson Palmer when they have their peak years rather than just the superstars who are there or not. And then they play that running in the playoffs, and they get hurt. And suddenly, one of the best teams in the league has no quarterback, and we don't get to see the matchups that we wanted to see because of, it, of the end of the regular season. And now you can say they can rest guys, maybe maybe lot of opportunities if they've got their playoff spot wrapped up. But the culture of the NFL typically doesn't allow for that. And adding one more game to the end to the regular season just means we're going to get less value in the playoffs and less excitement in the playoffs. Furthermore, even when quarterbacks don't get hurt in the late in the year, they're wearing themselves down further. They're playing an extra uh, 100, 100 snaps or 130 snaps, whatever the average is at this stage in the NFL. It just, I, I think... The expansion, the expansion, the expansion. It's a lot of what's that old saying about the fat cat or who, the who greedy cat that gets too big. Either way, I think the NFL needs to put a halt to this fairly quickly or they need to actually understand how they're going to schedule these things and make more of a thought process rather than, oh, we've got 16, how can we add 17? We've got 17, how do we add mm -hmm. 18? I look at this very similarly to how I look at VAR in soccer. 
you keep trying to look for the next solution, the next solution. What can we add? What can we add? And ultimately, you're not doing anything except detracting from the experience of the sport. No, I think you've summed it up very well there. And we talk about the Chiefs at the top of the show. And another thing that this extended season has done is kind of put the timelines out of whack and our narratives a little bit out of whack, where at several points, us included, have been thinking about maybe they're done for the year, but as they have been for the end, for the last four years, it seems like they're prime contenders in the AFC and possibly the best team in football. Again, it's whether they can actually translate that into another Super Bowl because at the moment they've only got that one to show for it. So uh, I know at the start of the season in our first show you picked uh, Chiefs, Bucks, Super Bowl. Are we are we sticking with that? I'm giving you one last chance to change it before year's end here. Oh, you're really putting me on the spot here. The Chiefs have been rolling and they do look like they have that potential to be the best team in the AFC. Who's going to challenge them? Like I, I, I was really high on the Patriots. I think the Patriots are probably still... Uh, in the best position too. We saw them get beat by the Colts last week. I actually thought that was a little bit of a fluke result. I wasn't really too concerned after watching the game, thinking that they're going to be like uh, suddenly on a downturn. I think they'll maintain their quality that they've had over recent weeks. In the AFC, I'd say the Chiefs... Actually, I'm going to say the Patriots, but it's it's going to be one of those two, I believe. I think the Patriots I'm going to go for in the end. On the other side of it, I think the Buccaneers started off this season as, yeah, that's definitely going to be them. Now I feel like a group of any teams could beat them. Like, the Chargers could beat them, the, the Cowboys could even beat them. Like, we're talking about the Cowboys going to the Super Bowl. That's a very weird position to be in because you just don't trust that franchise in general. Um, even, like, one of the lower wildcard teams, I could see beating this Buccaneers team. Like, I, I could see the 49ers turning up and beating that beating Tom Brady and everyone kind of turning around and going, wait, what? How did that happen? But, ah, uh, I think you, you can kind of, if, if we, I'll put it this way. If you, you phrase it in the NFC, would I take the Buccaneers or the field? I'd definitely take the field. Whereas if we had done that after week one or in week two or week three, I'd have probably taken the Buccaneers. Mm. And we'll get into the Bucs a little bit more shortly. should remind you that we are brought to you in association with the Erlingers College Football Classic. See details on the Northwestern Wildcats versus the Nebraska Huskers at the Aviva Stadium on August 22nd, 2022. Go to collegefootballireland.com for details on that. And get updates on all things American football via our newsletter. That's at otbsports.com forward slash club gridiron now time for the pick six yeah i think andy our visual wizard out there has a picture of tom brady flinging his tablet in anger keen last weekend after he was held scoreless somewhat it's almost unfathomable that Tom Brady, given the cast of characters he has at his disposal, couldn't register any scores. But it was a bit of a weird game. Obviously lost a few players to injury. Godwin, most notably, who's out for the season, unfortunately. And he's on a fran franchise tag, which, as an ancillary point, is a bit unfortunate for him, where he's trying to maybe, like, engineer a move. And there was a notion that this Bucks team stayed together for one more crack at a Super Bowl. And it's a little bit... It's dissipating a little bit. Like I know you spoke with the Bucks a few minutes ago, but to take this game in isolation, were there reasons for concern, or is it just one of those freak games that you can write off? Um, you can write it off in a sense because of the injuries, but there are reasons for concern also. Uh, Godwin's not going to be there again, so you can say it was just Chris Godwin was out, but he's not going to be there again. The very first play of the game, Brady looks over the middle of the field, and Chris Godwin is wide open, and he looks right past him and goes to the wrong option on the outside, and Marshawn Lattimore appears to intercept the ball, but it's it's overruled because he didn't control it. And from that moment, Brady didn't look right. He's had games like this this year. He's had a couple of games this year where his sharpness has not been there. 
and you've seen him drop his eyes earlier than he normally would. You've seen him make the wrong read more often than he would. You've seen him miss throws that he would never miss. So there's an element of Brady just not being in a position to elevate the players around him now. He has been relying on players a lot more because he's had Mike Evans, he's had Chris Godwin, he's had Robin Kowski, he's had Cameron Braid, even he's had Scotty Miller, he's had Antonio Brown. He's or he's had all these guys. And he hasn't had to like take a receiver who struggles against certain coverages or take a receiver who struggles in certain areas and figure out how to work with him and how to make him work, which is what made his whole career in New England for all that time. Getting Antonio Brown back will be huge. If Gronkowski shows a little bit more pace than he did last week, because he looked a bit slow last week. If he shows a little bit more pace, he, they might be all right. If Mike Evans comes back, they might be all right. But I have big question marks, because they relied so heavily on Chris Godwin. He had that 15-catch game, but it's not just that. He's the best receiver there, but he's also the one who can make the versatile plays that Mike Evans can't make. And once he went out, you saw very clearly what the Saints did. They had Marshawn Lattimore shutting down one side of the field. They had um, uh, uh, say Malcolm Jenkins, uh, playing Rob Gronkowski in aggressive man coverage that Gronkowski couldn't get off. So that meant when Brady dropped back and he looked for Gronk, Gronk wasn't there. He wasn't an option. He was often not given a window to throw into while the pass rush was coming down on him. And since Godwin wasn't there to break the coverage, essentially, Brady often had nowhere to go. And the really concerning thing is he was reacting very poorly to pressure. Like the pressure was two and three yards away from him and he was already crumpling. He was already dropping his eyes. Whereas what he should have been doing was standing into it and looking through it and trying to throw over it. So... There's major, major concerns about them, and I think they'll, they'll be very lucky to figure this out in time to, for the playoffs to be a high-powered offense. I think they'll be relying more on their defense, but that's not unusual. They relied a lot on their defense in the playoff run last year, too. Yeah, that sense of being a little bit gun-shy in the pocket, and it's something you could rarely level at Brady, like the way he used to, he wasn't ever ever overly mobile, but the way he could like move around within that little space and find his passes that was severely wanting and you know like he got an awful lot of credit in New England for working with below power receivers now it seems as if he's very reliant on having an all-star cast and as you were saying there you know with these players dropping away he's going to have to probably produce moments out of nothing a little bit more and at the age that he's at it's asking an awful lot to be fair he's delivered um, to this point and there's nothing to suggest he won't he won't marvel once more, but I, I agree with your scepticism. I think they, they might be in a little bit of trouble. It's interesting, that picture of him throwing the tablet, though. I think that'll be a lot of Irish dads on Christmas morning, would you say? <laughs> I'd be confused by it, not understanding how to work it, probably. Yeah, trying to figure out all the tech. But sure, look, I think we're all going to get there, Keane, at some point. Uh, we'll move on to number two in the pick six, and the Arizona Cardinals, who... I don't know, I was talking about last week or the week before that they probably weren't getting enough credit, and you know teams were or they were being overlooked for as potential number one seeds. And now you look at them, they've, they've dropped right down the, the metric in that regard. And I know your contention here is that Cliff Kingsbury is still the dominant figure in this team, for better or for worse. And as much as Kyler Murray, you know, trying to get back to full health and when he's on song, few can live with him. But Kingsbury's still letting him down in certain situations. Yeah, it, this game was a very clear uh, caught example of what a coaching staff on offense working well and a coaching staff on offense working poorly. And if you said that going into the game, you would assume the Cardinals were the team with the offense of coaching working well because they have that reputation. But if you go to the Lions game plan, the first touchdown they threw was uh, a designed throwback where the coverage was pulled open and Jared Goff had a wide open space to drop the ball into for his receiver to run under. It was a beautiful play design. If you go to the plays on the following drive after that, you can see how the, there's a variety in the route combinations that they're using that are, is pulling the defense apart and creating space and easy throws for Goff underneath. He converted one uh, 
one uh, option route uh, connection on third and seven to TJ Hawkinson uh, when he had an option to run an out route or run a curl route. Hawkinson runs up, reads the coverage, turns around to the curl because that's where the open spot is and they get the get the first down. Then on the next play, you have a bunch releasing together and they're all releasing in different directions but running in behind each other to pull the coverage apart and force the defenders back. That gives Goff an easy out route for another first down. And these plays were going out throughout the game with Josh Reynolds there now and Amon Ross and Brown. They have wide receivers there who are capable of getting open and capable of being effective if they're set up properly to do so. On the opposite side, Kingsbury went, well, I'm not even sure if Kingsbury was there, but Kingsbury's coaching staff went back to the tried and tested, tried and failed, deep curl routes. Everything is a curl route. Everything's a stop route. Everything is Murray either get, makes the read exactly in the first time or he has nowhere to go. And that just invited pressure. And then Murray himself was just making mistakes that he normally wouldn't make, missing throws that he normally wouldn't make, wouldn't miss. And that's always been the, the concern with this Cardinals team. There's a level of inconsistency at the quarterback position, at, in the coaching staff, that needs to be better for them to contend against the best teams on a, a four-game or three-game Super Bowl run. I'm very concerned about the Cardinals, especially without DeAndre Hopkins, because Hopkins can make a lot of big plays that cover for a lot of failed plays. And without him, AJ Green isn't that guy anymore. Christian Kirk is a good player, but not a great player. Rondale Moore can break off big gains. And Chase Edmonds is back, which is a very big value for him because he's a he's a more dynamic or space runner, dynamic receiver than James Conner is, despite how effective Conner has been all year. There's still enough talent there for them to be a contender in the NFC, but the the, the major problems are just the the consistency and the the thought process, the understanding, the philosophy of the way they should be working on offense, opposed to the way they are working on offense. So, like, there's obviously the dichotomy of games whereby the game plan the coaches have in place breaks down, and there's enough talent on the field to compensate. Whereas on days like this, where things aren't clicking for the Cardinals. Kingsbury's not equipped to arrest that tide in the middle of a game. And that's probably the concern where, you know, like there was talk of him being potential coach of the year candidate. But these are the kind of games where if things aren't going to plan, you need to be able to rip up the script and, and implement something new. And he wasn't quite able to do that. So from a Kingsbury point of view, is this a do you think this is an all encompassing concern that's going to extend through his career? Or is this the kind of thing he can improve on? This is who he is. It's who he's always been. It, it's, that's his philosophy. It's his approach. I don't even think it's a uh, game plan's getting away from him. I think it's just this is game plan. And when you do it as often as he does without uh, any success of it working, it's, it, it baffles you and it's hard to understand because if you were objectively looking at this and thinking about it, you wouldn't do it anymore. We'll move on to number three and someone we mentioned at the top of the show, Teddy Bridgewater, who's been ailed by injuries almost throughout his career and a variety of types. I think the latest on what happened last weekend was concussion. He's obviously ruled out for the next game and Drew Locke will start. But just to take a moment and reflect on where Teddy Bridgewater is at, Keane, he's had an interesting career to say the least, landed in a few different spots and looked impressive in a few of them. But in terms of his long-term prospects in the league, I'd like to see where you think he's at at the moment. Yeah, well, that's kind of the thing, and that's the reason he's worth talking about. He came into the league in the Derek Carr, Blake Bortles draft, and he's such a he was an incredible talent. Like there was people, very smart draft analysts I knew who were comparing him to Aaron Rodgers, and it, it, you watched him play. He played so well from inside the pocket. He processed everything so brilliantly. He was athletic, getting out of well, not athletic in the sense that he was a runner. He was not a runner at all, but he was athletic enough to get out of the pocket and throw well on the run, which proved to be very valuable, especially at Louisville. And when he went to Minnesota, the offense wasn't set up to be effective. So he had very uh, limited numbers. It wasn't until Stefan Diggs, his rookie season, where he actually had a proper receiver to throw to. He was throwing to guys like Charlie Johnson and guys who were barely in, in the league. And after they left Minnesota, they weren't in the league anymore. 
so no one else was picking them up. The early stages of his career, he got this rep- reputation as being just this game manager type, and it was so thoroughly undeserved. He had such an unbelievable level of talent, and the timing of that disastrous knee injury, it wasn't just an ACL, it was a whole leg. He nearly lost the leg. He was nearly not going to be able to play football ever again. The timing of that injury was so bad because it was the time when he was getting an offense around him, when he looked like he was about to break out and have a great year. It was just before Case Keenum came along and did, went really far with uh, a supporting cast that wasn't really, or went really far with a supporting cast that carried him, that allowed him to get to a, a level. And if Bridgewater had been on that team, it felt like the Vikings could have won a Super Bowl. And then for him to actually just come back and even play football ever again, uh, he first he went back to the Jets and was a, was played there in preseason. Somehow they went with Sam Darnold, even though Sam Darnold was absolutely atrocious. And then they went. He went to New Orleans, where he was a backup for a while. It felt like he should have been. He should have got an opportunity to start beforehand. Uh, then to the Panthers, obviously he did get a chance to start. But the the, the whole uh, quality of his play, the intelligence, the way in which he played quarterback, and also just the act, the nature of who he is as a person, the attitude he carried all the way through those severe injuries was always infectiously positive. I don't know how many people have seen it, but. It was uh, last offseason, I believe, because he's from Florida and he lives in Florida. He, he cycled essentially from Miami up to wherever, Fort Lauderdale, wherever it is, uh, that's the higher, higher city up. And he, he posted his tracker thing and he had cycled for about 16 hours. And he said, oh, I actually just went out for a cycle there for 20 minutes. And I just hmm. kept going and I wound up being up there. And it's like, you just casually decided to cycle half of Florida or whatever it was. But it, he's, um, he's it, it's a great sadness watching him now because... He's at that point where you're kind of flinching when anyone gets near him. And I think it's a career that was largely ruined. And I'm kind of delighted he got a chance to play again. I'm especially delighted he got a chance to make a lot of money because he would have missed out on a lot getting injured so early in his career. And he's just a quarterback who will go down as one of those guys that is a, a what if. And if someone who had, if, if things had just broken it another way, we'd have been talking about him as one of the greats of this, of this sport. Yeah. And like the Alex Smith parallel, just what you're alluding to there the notion that you're almost flinching watching him like the Alex Smith one was quite different in that he'd gotten through most of the phases of his career and was on the back nine whereas there is that sadness that Bridgewater never really got a chance to excel to his best level and the Saints one in isolation is actually quite interesting because he came in for that little stint when Breeze was injured and I think won five straight and definitely a consideration that he could have kept the job and for whatever reason didn't and if things had gone slightly differently there's no reason he couldn't have been a, a prime successor for Breeze it's just uh, the way the Panthers thing worked out and ironically Joe Brady's been let go because he wasn't able to make it work with Bridgewater last year so kind of the one that got away you, you don't know if some players have late career resurrections and if he can stay healthy for a sustained period you never know but um, it could be one of those situations where we never actually see the best of Teddy Bridgewater on to number four in the pick six and someone we saw the best of last week and possibly is giving the Ravens a little bit of a headache, Tyler Huntley, who um, balled out Keen. Is that the expression that Americans use? But uh, one of these dramatic comebacks that uh, the Ravens tend to like and also very unique to the Ravens, they complete the comeback and then don't finish it because they, instead of kicking the field goal, they go for the two-point conversion and... I'd be interested to hear, if, do you think that was the right call on this occasion? Because against the Steelers, given how injury ravaged the Ravens were on that occasion, I think they had to almost try and win it there, whereas they had the momentum against the Packers. And I think if they had got to overtime, they could very well have won that game. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I've changed my tune, I guess, over the years, and I'm not even doing it based on analytics or anything like that. I've reached a point where I'm like, you've got to get two yards to win the game. 
if you have an offense that you can't turn around to say to them, oh, we can get those two yards, what are you really doing? What kind of confidence are you showing in your team? And I think this goes back to, well, initially years and years ago, it was when Pete Carroll had Russell Wilson in his rookie year and they made the playoffs and they were playing Atlanta and there was six seconds left in the second quarter and Carroll got, um, was in field goal range. They were right next to the end zone. And he said, no, let's go for the touchdown. Let's not just kick the field goal. And the clock ran out. They didn't get the touchdown. He got huge criticism for it. But he's going off that field saying to his quarterback, believe in you, 100%. You, 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 you're my offense. I believe in my offense, 100%. And at that time, he was building the culture of that team. And for me, I think John Harbaugh gains more from losing these two games by going for it on those downs in the long run by how much it empowers his players and how much it, it, it makes it easier to develop players who are in a situation where they're like, yep, we can do this, and we believe in ourselves, we've got the full belief of our coaching staff. And it's an element we ignore too much because often we, we talk about the X's and O's, whatever you want to say, the breakdown, the performance, the specifics of what happened on the field. But if you're actually talking about the sport, you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with people who have different feelings and different, uh, different confidence levels. And your coach, one of his primary responsibilities is to get the confidence levels up. And that's what Harbaugh does. So whether you, whether you want to go through the maths of it, and I think more often than not the maths of it say do go for it, but whether you want to go through the maths of it, whether you want to go through the football tradition of it, whether you want to go through the belief aspect of it, I think from my, set, from my own point, I'm never really going to criticize someone going for it because it's two yards. You need two yards. It's not like you're going for it in 4 and 20. It's a very manageable uh, thing to do. Yeah, I was in a state of serenity, Keen, as Huntley stepped up to take the two-point conversion. I was so nervous for the Steelers one, and for this one I was fully sure they were going to execute it. And, but as producer JP points out, they have something like a record of two from seven conversions in this situation and weren't able to get the deal done on this occasion either. And Who has so, ever gone anywhere good listening to JP? Stop. Oh, come on. Here, listen, that's, that's a harsh thing to say around festive season, Kane. But listen, I would say this... What did you make of John Harbour literally calling over Mark Andrews <laughs> during the timeout? And then laterally, the Packers clearly, like they can't not have just clocked that in their little pre-play uh, talk because was it the safety for the Packers basically made a beeline for Andrews to double team him on that play and he was the one who ultimately broke it up. Were it not for that little wrinkle, he would have had a clear path and he probably would have made that catch. So I just found that a little bit bizarre. Yeah, he probably tipped that off a little bit doing that, but it's also Mark Andrews. You know that that's their priority. And that's oh. what they're going to do. How good is I Mark Andrews, Mark, by the way? How good is Mark Andrews? But how good is Mark Andrews though? He's unbelievable. He's like he doesn't he's he doesn't get he doesn't get talked about in the same conversation as Kelsey or Gronkowski, he but he's up there, isn't he? He's not. He's oh, too he far is. too inconsistent. Oh, he has this days like this where he catches everything. Put him down, game. JP. Take him off. He has days like this where he does everything brilliantly and he catches everything. And then he has days where he has three and four drops and you're looking at him going, you're costing us the game here. But on that point, I do have a major problem with the, the play call and the specific play calling. Never call plays like that that have one option and mm. fail. Because it's especially when you do these rolling pockets because you can't account for what the defense is going to do. You can anticipate what they're going to do, but give your quarterback more than one option. And when you roll the pocket and when you call a specific play to get one specific guy open, you're just taking away opportunity and you're making it easy for the defense to stop you. So don't do that. Yeah, it's just an outrageous comment of Mark Andrews. I'm still railing from it. Accurate one. I agree, though, like rolling to the right, um, it, for one, it cuts off half the field. And to your point, he was not throwing it to anyone other than Andrews there, even though... If you watch it back, Marquise Brown is wide open at the back of the end zone. So, Not that I've been overanalyzing this for the last week and the Ravens' playoff hopes hinge entirely on that play. But sure, look, we'll move on. We'll have time to talk about this in January. 
Number five in the pick six, the Dallas Cowboys, who you mentioned earlier on, have like their little, it's like one team is playing the game of Defensive Rookie of the Year between themselves and Micah Parsons has emerged to the fore here. Like he's just racking up sacks to no end, it seemingly. And like this is the kind of play that will be effective in the postseason. So they just need to navigate their way there, remain somewhat healthy, and when the weather conditions are, are the way they are in January, he's going to be a serious problem for other teams to deal with. Yeah, I think Micah Parsons, is, his value is in the versatility, and he'll be contributing in so many different ways. He's an effort player off the edge, he's an effort player when he loops inside on stunts, but he's also a quality player who can win one-on-one matchups on the outside, he can win one-on-one matchups through the inside. He can not really bull rush guys, but he's strong enough to drive them back. If the quarterback in the pocket gets uh, gets closed around him, he's aware enough to redirect and relocate, which is what's putting him in position to get all these sacks. I think he's a very, very talented player, and I think there's there's no real... He's one of those players that is so good and so well-rounded, he's a little bit boring to talk about because there aren't any specific weaknesses. There aren't necessarily elite peak traits either to point to. He's an all-around high-quality footballer. The thing that's confusing is why he was playing off-ball linebacker in college. He feels like he should be a pass rusher full-time, and I think the Cowboys are using him more and more like that now. They might end up kind of hurting themselves by moving him around again more. I think if they... And they do love drafting linebackers, so maybe next year they go out and get more linebackers again so Parsons can always be a defensive end, he can always be that pass rusher. Then then the other side of this, Trayvon Diggs, like, he's reached that level where you're thinking of him like Richard Sherman. You're thinking of him like, not Revis because it's a different style. You're thinking of him like Asante Samuel, someone who's always going to be ball hawking and someone who's always intimidating to throw to. I think Diggs is probably the more valuable player because he's the rarer commodity. It's harder to find a cornerback like him right now. you get got a guy like J.C. Jackson, Stefan Gilmore in recent times, guys who are just high-end every single week at a level of play, a level of performance that's so, so hard to reach at such a difficult position in sports. Um, if you give me either, I'd be delighted, but Diggs has to be the option ahead of uh, Parsons, I think, for me. Yeah, and he was on that ridiculous trend of interceptions. Obviously, that pace was unsustainable. I remember putting something on Twitter about it, and people were making possibly a justifiable point that the reason he's given these up, these chances to pick these balls off is that he is picked on to some extent. In the same way, the, the, is it gambling cornerbacks, these lads who almost freelance a little bit and, and try and make plays on the ball, can almost be got at in that sense with double moves and the like. So I don't know if you've noticed anything in that regard. Are there flaws in his game in that side of things? Yeah, he's going to give you plays, but like that that's standard now. The, the, the idea of having another Darrell Revis is impossible because of the rules of the game. It's how many plays do you give, and I don't think he gives too many plays. That's what he was doing as a rookie when he was really struggling and everyone was getting in behind him. The, they're educated guesses, and that's the thing. That's what Rich Sherman always did. It was, if the, my receiver runs this route, then I know this other route is more likely to come. So that means if I'm in a zone, I can let this guy go at this point, and I'll be in the passing lane, and the ball will come to me. It's stuff like that. You can get punished on it. Smart quarterbacks will see it early and they'll anticipate it and they'll actually understand your tendencies and purposely go to manipulate you with pump fakes and with their eyes. And that's a, a battle you have. There's a great, great story about Ed Reed uh, baiting Peyton Manning because he knows how much Peyton Manning studies film that he actually realized that I have to change up completely what I do for this one specific play so Peyton Manning throws him the ball. And that's the kind of thing great defensive backs do. Ed Reed gave up plays as well, like even as a, a free safety. They do it and they, they judge the percentages, I guess. If they think I have a 70% chance of getting an interception and a 30% chance of giving up a touchdown, I'm going for the interception. If I have a 40% chance of getting an interception and a 60% chance of giving up a touchdown, I'm not going for the, for the interception. And 
that's that's the the lives of a defensive back, and it's also why these guys have to have such insane egos because they're no matter what they're going to lose more often than they win. And any excuse to double down on an Ed Reed mention, I think Brian Baldinger does a great breakdown of that play you're talking about where Ed Reed basically writes the whole script for Peyton Manning and, and has him exactly where he wants him. It's, uh, there's another, I think, in the NFL Football Life documentary with Bill Belichick, I think it might have been the very first one they did, there's another one of, them, of himself and Tom Brady looking at Ed Reed as well on that play, so it just shows you the reverence he was held in. But just on the defensive player of the year odds I was mentioning, so Michael Parsons is favourite at the moment, TJ Watt right there with him also, and then Diggs is in the mix as well, but it does look, just if the odds are anything to go by, that it's Watt versus Parsons for that award. And then lastly, in the pick six this week, and something we've kind of flagged, for a couple of months now, Keen, the seemingly conscious uncoupling of Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson, which never seemed to be on the cards a few years ago when this team was flying high and Legion of Boom and all that went with that. And Russell Wilson emerged as an alpha within that as well and was driving force of that offense. And it seems to be falling apart. And the only two figures left standing are Wilson and Carroll. And as much as there's talk of them breaking up, I think there's a very good chance they are both of them aren't there next year. It would make sense for neither to be there. I think uh, a trade to the Dolphins for Russell Wilson would make a lot of sense because Tua, I know they've won seven in a row, but Tua still does not look like the, the, the long-term answer there. Pete Carroll, I think, will have to be forced into retirement, so I think he could wind up going somewhere else and getting a job elsewhere. The real interesting aspect of it is Wilson, though. Like Carroll, If Carroll goes somewhere, it'll take a couple of years for him to build up what he wants to build up. He's already failed to do that a second time after doing it the first time, so it's hard to be that excited about him. Uh, I think Wilson, if you look at the, the landscape of the NFL, you're talking Dolphins, like I mentioned, but maybe also the Steelers as Ben Roethlisberger's replacement because we've seen the Steelers make uh, aggressive moves. The Minka Fitzpatrick trade was one that was widely panned. I think that's largely worked out. He's been a phenomenal player, even though they paid an awful lot for him. If you added uh, Wilson to that offense... You'd suddenly have Deontay Johnson, Chase Claypool, you have Najee Harris. You'd need an offensive line, but with Wilson, you tend to not necessarily need an offensive line compared to, uh, or compared to if you had a different quarterback. And defensively there, they've got all those pieces that are still in position to uh, be quite a good team. So I, I think there's an off-season trade in there. I, th I think there there is a move to be made. I think everything's gotten a little bit stale in Seattle. Maybe they want Wilson to be a, a one-team guy for his whole career, and I'm sure Wilson will say that's what he wants to be. But logically, even emotionally, I think at this stage, it makes sense for them to hit a big reset button, a full-on reset button, and try and go in a completely different direction. And it was interesting looking at... So he basically, for people people listening to the show, I'm sure are familiar with the timeline, but he went on Dan Patrick's show and was uncharacteristically open, I would say, in the off-season and suggesting, yeah, I've taken too much punishment, haven't been protected in the offensive line. You know, like... DK Metcalf is there, but the drafting and the offensive side of the ball hasn't been overly stellar running back situation. So he's basically flagging all these issues. And then the subsequent leaks which followed were talking about his no-trade clause and also the teams he'd be willing to go to. And there were a few odd ones in there, like Chicago Bears, who rightly or wrongly, I think, are married to Justin Fields for the next couple of seasons anyway. They're probably out of the running. The, the Raiders were in there. That's another team that's somewhat off-Broadway in the sense that not necessarily a win-now team, and Derek Carr is playing all right. Another interesting one that hasn't been talked about all that much, the New York Giants. And I think they're just about ready to give up on Daniel Jones. It's just whether he... It's just whether they can get the capital to get Wilson in. And also, 
is Wilson good enough at this point in his career to be an ascending tide for a less than good team, if you know what I mean? Like, if he goes to the Steelers, they're, they're automatically a candidate, whereas if he goes to the Giants, there's going to be a lot on his shoulders. Yeah, I think he's at that stage. It's like that uh, Carson Palmer in Arizona stage, where if you have a good team around you, you can be really effective and be a playoff contender. If you're going to a team that's trying to figure things out, yeah, it, it, Wilson's not going to solve your problems. That's definitely one to keep an eye on. And we're, even though the playoffs haven't started yet, we are emerging into off-season talk and there will be a lot of action by the looks of it. I know there was a lot of QBs departing last season, but similarly, there'll be a lot of merry-go-round this coming 2022. Also, just before we go, every week, listeners to The Snap are in with a chance of winning some co-branded beanies and merch. To enter, simply select the winner in our game of the week. Actually, a few good games this week, so contenders are plenty, but I've gone for... The Bills at New England, and the, the last game wasn't overly stellar, but I'm hoping the weather conditions will be slightly better this time. The Patriots are at home, and they're favoured by two and a half points. What do you reckon, Keane? Uh, well, I've been talking about the Patriots as Super Bowl contenders, so what can I do but pick them? And is this a must-win for the Bills in any way, in terms of laying down a marker? Uh, mathematically it's not but I think it is in the sense of the uh, belief and the confidence in the team approaching the playoffs I think the fact that they had a good strong regular season last year and then largely failed to put up any sort of a fight in Kansas City in the playoffs they need a big game against a big team and you had that game against the uh, was it the Buccaneers two weeks ago where they where they were coming staging a late comeback but the first half there kind of highlighted their, their flaws so it's an important game. It's a, a game where Belichick, you you know what you're gonna get, you know what you're gonna get in terms of game planning and how he's gonna approach you by now. So you've got to be able to figure it out. If you can't figure Bill Belichick out, you're not gonna come through the AFC unless you can avoid the Patriots completely. And Bel- Belichick is so so good that you need to make sure you get the most out of every single rep you go against him and not give give him uh, obvious flaws that he can attack later on in the season. Yeah, so that's at least some of your Christmas sporting viewing sorted for this year. Uh, send your pick on that game to us at Off The Ball using the hashtag OTBSnap. That's another show in the books, our last one for 2021. Thank you to Keen, to JP, to Andy, to everyone who's helped on the show over the year. And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll chat to you in 2022.